This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. sitting here thinking about you. What are you doing? What's going on in your world? Happy 2021. Uh, yeah, feels so good not to be under 45. Feels so good. It feels so good. So weird. I, you know, January 20th, it was like, I wasn't sure how to feel. I felt happy. It wasn't 45, but just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I don't know. It felt a lot of fear around that. Um, mostly because of January 6th, I'm sure, and four years of a narcissist. (laughs) But January 6th was, oh my God, just a horrible display of white supremacy. I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, you know, there were a lot of people there and um, each one of those people are associated in a family that may not have the same views And, and in communities. Like I... And I mean, I I know somebody that at least was there the day before for the quote unquote rally. No idea if said person took part, but um, uh, it's a hard thing to uh, wrap my head around, except um, extremely validating for those of us that have had to turn our cheek and turn the other way um, in relationships and uh, that's good. Validation is fucking awesome. Uh, but absolutely shameful. And so, yeah, here I am already going dark with my podcast <laughs> intro. <laughs> well, I'll have you know, my fellow Americans, um, if you are American, uh, I have my first international guest, which I'm really excited about. Sarah, I have Sarah, uh, and she's Oh my God. So Sarah's really, really, really special to me. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being you. Um, Sarah's actually the first person that, that emailed me when I first released this podcast and was just really ecstatic about the platform and about um, what I was doing. And, uh, you know, we emailed and eventually I heard some of their story via email and I could tell that Sarah was very eager to share and wanted to be believed and needed to share. Um, We recorded this last year. It's a very heartbreaking story and it's kind of a long one, but um, (laughs) Sarah had a lot. I mean, it's a lot. Sarah's a complete, oh my God, she's just a badass. Uh, She's overcome just to, just to give you a little bit She's overcome uh, molestation, uh, multiple assaults, uh, like one very recent um, homelessness, even as a teen, uh, was jailed as a minor, multiple near-death experiences, addictions, um, and at one point, which I haven't really shared this yet with Sarah, um, but she had found herself at a very famous serial killer's farm in Vancouver, B.C., which you'll hear her just briefly mention, but I went down a rabbit hole with this Picton Farms, Picton Farms, um, and it was Robert Picton, and he had like, I think it was 49 women that he murdered. I don't know if they were all women, actually. I didn't, I think they were. Anyway, 
that was insane. That's crazy. That's crazy. And, you know, also suffers from mental illnesses, just the whole shebang of what we're all doing in our lives. Like, oh my God. And she was brave enough to come on. And so I picked a quote from, um, for this podcast for Sarah and considering the white supremacy in our country that is just exhausting at this point. I picked a quote from Toni Morrison from her book, Beloved. Toni Morrison wrote, freeing yourself was one thing. Claiming ownership of that freed self was another. And I picked this quote for Sarah because um, Sarah is still in this process of claiming ownership of her now freed self. She's just now really beginning to uh, process the depths of the neglect and the suffering that she went through. Um, and when I say neglect, it wasn't, I'm not referring to anyone in her family. It's just after a while, the patterns, you just neglect yourself, right? Um, and, you know, the other thing is because she is from Canada, I was floored to learn about how the systems work there and how I've painted this picture of something else in my mind. And when in reality, you're going to hear this girl tell you, the cops never helped her either and have never served her or treated her with any kind of like safety or thoughtlessness or thoughtfulness. And so, you know, you hear that and you hear how uh, you just get to know some of the Canadian systems, um, which is really interesting. Uh, Sarah is so brave and so relentless, <laughs> so kind and compassionate. Um, she's overcome an enormous amount of trauma and be only because she's brave enough to face it and I have no doubt that she is overcoming it now and is going to continue um, I really was I am so grateful for my time with her and being able to give the space that I was able to give to her to to share um, it means the world to me to be able to do that so as you go into this podcast, please go into it with an open mind, an open heart, no judgment, and I love you. Okay, so Sarah, where were you born in the world? I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Ah, the golden land for us Americans. <laughs> Apparently, everyone I talk to thinks that we somehow are just this amazing place, but that has not been my experience entirely. <laughs> right. So um, do you have brothers or sisters? Or who, where were you born in? What kind of family were you born into? I do. I have a brother who is two years older. He was uh, two when we were born. And then he, I have a, well, I have a twin sister. I say I'm probably adopted because I look totally different than the two of them, but I have a twin sister and I'm a minute older than her. And how cool. I use that. Yeah, twin though. How fun. You would, I don't know, maybe not. I don't know. I, I, I knew a lot of twins growing up, which was really weird for the small school I went to. There were like a lot of twins. Well, when you're fraternal, you don't get any of the benefits. Like you can't swap in class or pretend, you know, you're the other one to go on a date or something like that. So you don't get any of the benefits, but you have this other person who's the same gender living in your home, stealing all your clothes and having the same friends yeah. as you. So there's a lot of uh, combat going on, I would say, but you yeah. love fiercely too, because we always say we're roommates because yeah. we 
we're uh, literally from day one, born and raised that's in the same place. Were your were your parents married then? They were together when you were born. Yeah, they were. They were. And then, um, did you stay in Vancouver? Um, we moved around a lot. I'm not entirely sure how many different places, but we kind of bounced around and uh, where I am, uh, there's like lots of little outlying cities and stuff. So um, we kind of stayed in the same area. My dad um, was a radio DJ for all the top radio stations here. So they had to move when he would get placed in a different station. And then when they had us, they kind of more settled down and stayed in the lower mainland. Got it. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm sure that's like a demanding job. It was. Yeah. Especially when you're one of the, um, like they call morning DJs or whatever, where you're basically a local celebrity. Um, it kind of bleeds off almost into other categories. He would do commercials and he was the face of Mr. Mike's, the restaurants and stuff like that. So, wow. Yeah. Celebrity. Yeah. So he was busy, but it was great for us. I mean, we, got to go to movie premieres from the time I, as far back as I can remember. And I grew up in radio stations, meeting all the bands and. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was, there was a lot of great things to it. Yeah. So did your mom pretty much raise you? Yeah. Um, well, they split up when I was 18 months. Um, okay. So he moved out and um, didn't really come around a lot at the beginning when they first split and um, then he would have us on the weekends because he was so busy. I don't, I actually don't remember much. I, there's a couple things that I do remember. I remember like that it was super traumatic for my mom because of the reason that they split. And, um, I remember oh. my grandma telling me that after they split, he, um, hadn't come back for a while and they had a knock on the door. And when they answered it, it was him and me and my sister ran and hid because we didn't fully remember who he was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he wasn't around it also what did he do yeah he was having affairs like in the radio station and stuff oh my god yeah jesus so your mom has uh a, oh my gosh she has your brother and three kids three kids, Could, three kids she, under how did she four. work yeah what did she do and twins and we were seven pounds seven and a half pounds each so and she went over 40 weeks like we were massive babies so i'm sure the treachery that did to her body yeah. and the recoup rate would have been you know probably a lot more extended and yeah. um just terrible but and she oh wasn't working because she was a home parent so it was <sighs> kind of one of those things where you're thrown into this totally different life that you now have to navigate yeah no absolutely it's that so I'm sure she had to go find a job somehow to help support yeah and she she was, a, so she was a single mom with three children and still was going to school full-time and working full-time because she knew she wanted to do better and have better for us. And she sacrificed so much to do it. I wow. mean, she has an M, uh, she, she's actually going to go back now. She says she'll never stop going to uh, school. She loves it, but she went and got um, her degree so she could be a special ed assistant and worked in our schools so that she could be at school when we were and off when we were. And then she went back and she became a social worker for the ministry. That's pretty great. I know. I'm so proud of her. Yeah, that's pretty great. So um, who raised you then? If she was working and going to school, did you just have babysitters? Did you have family that was around you? Like, what did that look like as a young kid? 
Well, she purposely was doing the special ed so that she could um, have the same hours as us. But if, I mean, she never, she never had any time off or um, she had the weekends. My dad would pick us up on the weekends and um, take us for the two days and then right. she'd be right back in her lap. So I'm sure it was beyond exhausting, um, probably pushed, you know, the levels of sanity and patience far beyond anyone should have to deal with. Right. No, God. Yes, absolutely. And Plus to heal from like a heartbreak. Oh, she was devastated. I'm sure. Um, yeah. you know, she had no inclination that this was, uh, what was happening and, you know, we, she married forever. So your pr childhood pretty much was like from, you know, your mom, besides having a mom that is absolutely raising you completely a hundred percent on your own. It sounds like your dad was maybe tiptoeing around at the beginning. And then was he consistent after that? Or was he always kind of in and out? Um, he was more consistent. It honestly, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it kind of depended on if he had a girlfriend at the time. Um, when he didn't have a girlfriend, he definitely showed up more and there for sports days and that kind of thing. And then if there was a girlfriend, um, he pretty much would kind of shirk his, his responsibilities with us. I think he was born between the two lifestyles, right? He had this one that yeah. kind of was almost like a shadow of the former married man. Yeah. And then this one where he's a local celebrity and cheerleaders want to date him. Yeah. That had to, that had to have been really hard for like to see as a kid because he was a celebrity in a way and everybody had him on a pedestal. Everyone loved yeah. him. Everyone then, loved him. We couldn't walk anywhere without people going, oh, and saying his name and then stopping. And I remember being a kid holding his hand and always just being like bored. And can we go now? Can we go now? Because everyone always wanted to talk to him. Oh, um, God. Um, and so they all loved him. Yeah. They thought he was great. Yeah. And like, and to every time you go, there's, you know, most likely going to be, you know, a new girl who you've never met and she's his girlfriend and and she's just kind of now part of the scene and you have to accept it and you haven't seen him you know in in five days or whatever and you want to spend time with him but now you're spending time with him and this girl that you've never met so rude to do that to the kids it's so rude agreed <clears throat> so rude and selfish makes That's me why really no mad it's my son unless we've been together for like two years because I yeah. don't want people in it. And my mom, I actually thought that my mom didn't date my entire childhood. I said that to her many a times. And the only reason I found out that she actually did is because my dad brought us back there early and there's a guy there. And I remember saying like, who's this? And him playing a game with me and finding out years later that that was, she was dating him because she kept it from us. She didn't want to be one of those women that yeah. had a new guy. Right. She sacrificed right. nonstop. Yes, women always. Ah. It's crazy. Thank God she did. Thank she God she did. Her time. That's for yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, that you were able to be around her as much as you were. To, yeah. Like as a as a young when you needed to the most. Yeah. You know, you had you had her, and that's amazing. It's sad to um, think though how different things could have been because you know um, a lot of the things that my siblings especially and and I remember some too that you know, obviously were extremely impactful right. uh, on my life were because of these, these circumstances that, you know, she was tired. She, I mean, I remember her telling me one time she hadn't bought a new pair of jeans in 10 years, but we always had a good winter coat, good winter boots, like, 
and she'd go to work, deal with special needs children, come home to us who are, you know, obviously struggling with what's happening with her and my dad and, and other things. And, um, you know, testing her sensibilities slightly, I will say that. And you, you can only be stretched so thin. And so a lot of the negative impact is because she was doing the best she could. She didn't have any more to right. give. But unfortunately, as a child, you don't look at it no, like that. You sure don't. Of course you don't. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely yes. So you're, you're for the most part, besides that, right? Like things were looking okay in your world because you had your mom who's amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, she, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but how, so how were you as a kid then at that point, like going through elementary school? I'm very lucky in the friendship department. Um, I'm still actually friends today with, I would say 90% of them. A lot of my friends have been my friends for about 30 years. So I'm extreme and like through all of the crazy ups and downs that happened to follow my childhood, but um, they've stuck with me and I'm, so I'm very blessed in that way. And every day beyond grateful, I can't even say, but I definitely, um, if you ask my parents, I know my dad in the past has said that I was a great kid. Uh, my memory is not the same. I don't remember being a great kid. I remember definitely having some behavioral issues and I struggled in school a lot. Um, I later was diagnosed with ODD, which is oppositional defiance disorder. And um, so that makes me just a smidgy um, defiant. And so when they would be teaching lessons or something like that, I would always want to understand why we, you know, carry the two and they don't got time for that. And then I would just act up because we lived in a smaller town. Um, if you were a certain age, you hung out with people who were a year or two older and a year or two younger. And so a lot of my brother's friends were my friends as well. And he eventually um, started to get into heavy drug use. And, and oh my gosh, so he was like 14, mom, 13. Yeah. Oh my God. What kind yeah. of drugs? Yeah. yeah, it was heroin. Eesh. Yeah. Yeah, it took over our city. Um, and pretty much wiped out all of the teenagers. Um, and he started getting into trouble with the law and she had begged them to incarcerate him and they wouldn't. So she decided that um, if she- Wait, 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 there, wait, 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 wait. She wanted him to be incarcerated. So I just wanna, this is different, you know, for Americans to hear that because oh, it's right. almost like the opposite. <laughs> like, like, like we're yeah. like, please, can we go to rehab or something or like, you know, like that we're usually pushing for that. So I want right. to, I want to understand that. That's so interesting. Our judicial system here is probably the biggest joke on the face of the planet. Um, you can be charged with murder and get two years and our prisons are not like your prison. Okay, so so are, it's a country club. So your mom wanted him to be, she wanted him arrested because they weren't. He, well, he went in front of the judge. I think he stole right. something from a store or something. And she actually said to the judge who she knew was about to release him don't release him because she knows her children. She knew that for my brother, that that would be a wake up call. And for his personality right. type, yeah. it would make, it would make a difference. Okay. Whereas me, she knew something like, because I was so defiant <clears throat> and I didn't like authority. Like I, I if you were uh, my friend's parents, I would sit on the floor and lick it off if you told me to. Right. But if you were like a teacher or anything like that, and you told me to do something that didn't make sense, I was not going to do it. Um, so she told the judge she could see it sense that he was about to release him. And she said, don't let him go. 
put them in there, even if it's like a month or a week or whatever, it'll be enough to scare him and okay. he'll, he'll change his ways. And the judge didn't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can drive drunk, like extremely intoxicated 16 times here and we don't incarcerate you. We'll just take your car for a day or two, give it back. And then eventually they kill someone. Either way, the systems are fucked. Like it's that's what so I'm hearing you say. Like, okay, got it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's it's crazy. A joke. It's a joke. So okay, sorry, I took us down that rabbit hole. So, so for your brother, them. he's he's released and he's doing more heroin. Yeah, and he's he's hanging with like worse people. And and you know, for me, like I my memory of it is is um has obviously adapted to my brain now as an adult. And so I sometimes forget how little he seemed so big to me he because he's six foot four too so he always just seemed so much bigger and when i remember what a 13 year old is it puts it a little more into perspective i mean this was her baby so she decided that um there was absolutely nothing else that could be done they had put him into treatments and stuff and so they just she decided that um the last option was to move him and get far away from the people and the, the influences down here and so we actually, and it, and, and it did work. She, she wasn't wrong. Um, unfortunately to do that because it's, it was like nine and a half hours away in a very, very small town. Um, she couldn't really bring all of us because we didn't have anywhere to go. So they were going to live in a, a motel for the first while while yeah. they basically, she got a job, got a home, like got situated. And so she needed to leave me and my sister back here um, with my dad who was working 22 hours a day at the time. <laughs> yeah, and I was friends with my brother's friends. So um, inevitably, you know, I started heading down the same road um, and now she was gone. She wasn't here to see it, witness it. Like my, I remember my sister acting really sick one day and me thinking she was just kind of being a, a drama queen about it and being like, oh, you're fine, get over it. And I left the house and I got a call um, a couple hours later that she had called my grandma to come pick her up. And she actually had, um, I can't remember what it's called, but the infection in your heart and your like you have a heart infection and she almost oh died, but no one was there to, to know. Oh so my God. we were alone a lot. Right. And you're hanging with a rough crowd on top of it. Yeah. Who thinks that, you know, all of the ideas that I'm now having, because why go home to sit there alone and, and just, you know, stare at the ceiling or something. Um, this yeah. is before cell phones and, and Facebook right. and all that. So right. I would just say, Oh, shit, that's crazy. And they were like two steps ahead of what I was. So right. they, it was like almost like an education in, in being a degenerate teenager. Oh my God. So you got into trouble. I got into trouble and I was, I started using drugs as well and um, had been in front of a judge a couple of times for um, like, I think I stole something from a store and stuff like that. And um, my mom finally got word that maybe I wasn't doing so good and um, that it could be starting to become a situation like my brother. And she knew that they needed to get me up there, but I wanted to stay with my friends and I had said, I will never move up there with you. I'm not, I, you can't get me to go ever. I didn't know it was even like in the works, but I had said preemptively, I'm not going. 
so she came for a visit and um, were you diagnosed with were you diagnosed with that <clears throat> um, oppositional disorder prior to this like at a young age did they did you know I was diagnosed I think I was 13 uh 12 when I was diagnosed oh, so around the same time but yeah. your mom and dad knew yeah like it was it was pretty undeniable okay for sure um I now know also that I um have ADHD but I'm more I'm a mental hyper I'm not physically hyper my brain is fire yeah. crazy right um so they but I was also I remember my mom when they told her that I had ODD she said so she's a teenager because she assumed that you know it just meant you don't like authority and you want to do what yeah. you want to do right yes yes but which is totally wrong right no yeah exactly so your parents essentially are telling their child that has oppositional defiant disorder. That, that one, they didn't move. say that, I, they didn't tell me I was going to move. They said that one day, like the plan is I'm going to leave. I remember the day my mom left. We didn't have much warning, right? And right. she left everything and my dad moved into our house to take care of us. I remember laying on the floor of the bathroom and I had had, a, I was, I had bronchitis at the time and I just laid there and it just kind of hit me and I was crying. And I remember her saying, um, what are you crying about? And I said, I just feel so sick because I couldn't put into words that like it was all hitting that they were going like they were right. going to be gone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's serious abandonment feeling. But then know? when she was gone, you know, I didn't want to leave my friends who in her absence had, you know, filled uh, yeah. the yeah. yeah. Yes. And so did drugs. Like that, that's, that's what happens. Like the opposite, that's of, the opposite of addiction is connection. It's not, you know, sobriety and treatment and all these other things. It's connection. And I didn't feel connected to anyone. I was right. floundering. So, right. So when, when they try to get you to come back they, or they try to get you to move when they're realizing that you're like, you need to, to also be removed from this, what do they do? Well, they never, they, they never told me that because, um, apparently, so I had been in trouble with the cops. They kind of knew my name because it was a small town and, um, she had called them and said, you know, we need to get Sarah out of here. This is what we think we might do. Like, what do you think? And they said, do it, get her out. And so I was told that my mom and my, and my brother were going to come down for a visit. And I had been out with my friends doing God knows what. And when I walked in the door, my dad asked me if I wanted to go to McDonald's. And I remember thinking, he never asked that. I'm not hungry, but yes. And we got in. And as we were driving home, we saw my mom and my sister walking down the road. And he said, Oh, there's your mom and your sister. Let's pick them up. They got in. And I remember him looking in the rear view mirror at my sister, who was like obsessed with Slurpees. And he goes, do you want to get a Slurpee? And she goes like this. Yes, yeah, slowly. And we started to drive and we went past the only 7-Eleven. And I'm thinking, that's where you would go to get a Slurpee. And then I knew we're I saw it. We're hitting the highway. We're going. And I just knew. I just knew in that moment, they're taking me. Oh, my God. Like, they were just... They, they put you in the car and they were going. Yeah. And so that, I like, jumped out of the moving. Vehicle. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't want to go. Oh my God, Sarah. I didn't, I felt like I didn't get to say goodbye to anyone. I didn't pack my stuff. Like I didn't, I didn't get to know anything. It turned out that my best friend, um, she actually knew she had come by that morning and I was jumping on my bed, listening to Fleetwood Mac and she seemed so somber and I couldn't understand why. And apparently it was because she knew and she kind of wanted to say goodbye and tell me, but she couldn't because it was for my, the greater good, right? I know that now. At the time I was like, my friends! So I just jumped out of this moving vehicle and my dad 
chased me down the highway and I was screaming and all these cars just kind of would slow down and keep going and oh my god and then we got into a fight and on the side of the highway there and he dragged me back to the van threw me in the back and took off and I woke up uh I guess nine and a half hours later and I remember kind of peeking with one eye to see where I was and what's happening because I didn't know I didn't even know and so I peeked and I was like looking around with the one eyeball no one's there no one's there okay jump and I jumped out of the bed I ran to this front door I ran out of it and started running down this hill barefoot with a crop top on in the middle of winter and just kept running until a lady asked are you okay do you need any help and I was like yes and she gave me $20 a pack of smokes a coat and took me to social oh service my God. and then what happened holy yeah. shit Sarah <laughs> Then they were like, do you know anyone here? Do you know where you are? I was like, no, I don't even know where I am. And I was like, no, I don't know anyone here. And they were like, we can't return you to Vancouver because you're a minor. If your parents want to move you here, they can, but we also can't make you go home. And then I remembered we had a family friend that lived there. So I gave her name. They called her and she said that I could come, that they could take me there. And, and that's when I was like, I knew immediately that it was biding my time and that probably in a week I'd be hitchhiking home. Oh my God. So did you? Um, I think I stayed for um, like six months or something. And because within the first month, I didn't know anyone. I didn't want to meet anyone because this is just a stopover. I'm leaving. And, but everyone kind of pushed for me to go out and, and, you know, see other people. And my brother had already been there. So he knew people. And I was hanging out downtown and met some people. And then um, I didn't know the city at all. And so I was trying to find my way back to the family friend's house, um, wandering and these two guys were following me. Um, and I knew that it probably just didn't feel good because I grew up in a big city and they got close to me when I was at this like rock wall. Um, it's still there actually. I see it all the time and I'm like, Ugh. and pushed me oh. down on it. And one got on top of me and ripped the wife beater that I borrowed from the family friend's daughter and were getting between my legs and trying to kiss oh me God. and I was trying to fight them off and that was kind of when I decided that um, I'm not playing anymore. Oh my God, Sarah, that's super scary and terrible. I, I was more angry, I think at the time, because I felt like I don't even want to be here and you guys made me come here and now this happens because I'm here. Like this wouldn't have happened if I was back home because my friends would be with me. Here I am and I don't know anyone. And so I'm a sitting duck. Like I just, it, the anger built up, the resentment. I think that there was just so much anger um, and frustration yeah. that yeah. Um, it just, yeah, boiled over. Mm. Especially because when we let, when they took me, I remember having a hard time even with the place that we lived at because I was five when we moved in and there was um a young uh she was 14 I believe she was it says um young girl in the complex and so my mom thought she would be a great babysitter and had her babysit us and she ended up uh, molesting all three of us over a long stretch of period of time and oh my god and this then, is when your mom moved out when you were going when your mom left your, your dad yeah when we were five and then they continued oh, to live in the complex and so they oh, were my god. 10 feet away for <sighs> all those years so you'd stare at she would see her leaving the house and and you uh, never told your mom i did she yes yeah, they went we went to court um oh shit yeah she um uh, pled guilty she agreed to plead guilty 
as long because my mom knew that if she if we didn't accept I mean I guess not we because I was five but if they she didn't accept a plea deal that they would have us come in and testify and that that's super traumatizing to young children so my mom accepted a plea deal that involved her getting loads and loads of counseling and and never really talking to us or anything but she lives right across from you and and it was a complex so it's one driveway across you know it's a it's a one lane road basically and you can see her and you guys told your mom and she did something yeah she did my mom is yeah I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm so, so sorry, but like you rarely hear this, a piece like this. You rarely hear like a young kid and an entire family of children, you know. My brother like, was the first one to say something. So bless his heart. I don't think I would have. Yeah, he was the oldest and yeah, like. Well, and she hard. said she's our stuffed animals and our toys. And when you're a kid, they matter, you know. My God, Sarah, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And your mom's a total fucking badass. I like, know, right? Holy shit. Like, holy shit. I know. Oh, my God. Okay, so. That's, like, the only thing I ever cry about. Oh, she's so great. She's, so, she's so great. She's so great. So, okay, I'm going to go back to the terrible men um, by the rock wall. Uh, what happened after that? Yeah. Did you, I left. you went back to the family friend. Did you tell her that anything happened, that you were just assaulted? Or we, did you bury it? I told her daughter, cause I, she, when she lent me the wife beater, she had said to me, make sure you bring this back. Like I want it back, da 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 da. And when I got back, it, it had some blood on it and it was torn. And so I was like, I'm sorry, don't hate me. This is what happened. And I had seen that they were hanging out with this other person. So I found out their names and told her who it was. Um, but I don't, I didn't tell her mom and I don't know that I, you just wanted um, to get out the of time, there. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I would have done anything. Um, and it was yeah. one of the small towns that you see. It was a foot, it was, I call it the footloose town. Like um, there was people from, you know, the wrong side of the track. There was the people that had some stance and I'm this newcomer who, you know, was considered the big city kid. And so there was almost like a hate and a distrust from day one. And then I'm saying this about these two people that um have good standing and actually it's funny because a week later I was downtown and a young girl came up to me and she was like looking like she wanted to fight or something and she was like are you Sarah and I said yeah getting ready and she said I heard what you said about xyz they did it to me too and apparently they did it to a lot of people dicks but I was like well not me again because I'm leaving and I Got right. the highway with a backpack and put out my thumb and hitchhiked. So you did it. You so your what did your parents do? How did you do that? How did you manage to get out of there? Well, in that town, um, hitchhiking is actually extremely common within town. Um, if you ask your parents for a ride, they'll say no, just go hitchhike. Um, not normally. What? Not normally <laughs> nine and a half hours, but well, because anyone picking you up, you know, usually, right? But um, okay. I didn't care. I I mean, I knew. Right. I knew that it was you know, probably not the safest option. My, I had heard stories of my mom hitchhiking when she was in the seventies and some bad experiences. And I knew it could go bad, but I, that's the problem with the teenage brain is it's not where it needs to be. And it didn't seem that no. risky because it hadn't been yet. Right. 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 Like there was absolutely, you really did have like this, um, enormous amount of like, like no fear. 
because I, I, in my opinion, this is the problem with having multiple traumatic experiences. I actually didn't even learn that the things I'm telling you were traumatic until a year ago. I had no idea. They were part of my story. They were in, you know, in a right. timeline and they were just a bullet, a bullet item right. on this. No, absolutely. And like they're the, the, the foundational thing already, like when you, when you talked about the terrible molestation that happened, like the lack of safety, even yeah. if you are believed by somebody and you do go come forward with it, you know, publicly or whatever, you know, it, that, that lack of safety never goes, it, you, you never can overcompensate for it exactly. and never, That's you PTSD. can't recreate it. It's straight up PTSD and it's a million other things. Sometimes it can transform. Yeah. But like, I think it know. just, I just, from that point on, Oh, you're surviving. You, it. you're like straight up in a traumatic response mode. Yeah. That's I don't think I've ever, I don't remember a time I wasn't to be completely right. honest, but right. I didn't know that at the time I thought, I remember having arguments, long-winded, you know, two-hour debates about how, no, this has had no effect on me. You are wrong. You don't oh my know. God. I'm okay right. with all of it. I had no clue. None. Right. I truly believed up until a year ago, I'm good. That's crazy, Sarah. Okay, okay. So you, you hitchhike back to Vancouver. I did. Right. And how old were you? Um, I was 14, I believe it and was. And how did that go? Was it safe? Um, we got stuck halfway on a highway in the middle of winter. And so that sucked and I didn't have any money. So food wasn't really an option and, and what have you. Um, but eventually I think it was 16 hours later, we made it here and I got the lady to drop us off at my friend's house where I figured I would stay because I couldn't tell my parents that, you know, Hey, I'm in Vancouver, knock, knock, knock on my dad's door or anything. So I stayed there and, um, went back to resuming my old life I figured um and that unfortunately included doing you know degenerate teenager behaviors which included drugs and uh crime and stuff like that mm -hmm. and that's when I was incarcerated um as a juvenile Ugh. oh shit for a while because I um was charged with robbery and I got out um, a year later or two years later and they asked me where I wanted to go because they had shipped me to a town quite far from here. Yeah, so they said, you know, where do you wanna go? We'll get you a bus ticket. And I said, I can go to my hometown or I can go to the new town. And obviously I'm going back to my friends. So they, some, I don't know why they gave the choice to me. I mean, I'm a teenager. That's honestly in my opinion now I look at it and I'm like that's ridiculous but they did and I took the bus you're right you're right it why is why would you leave it up to me who knows if I even know anyone there I could get off the bus and have no adult supervision right it's ridiculous it's absolutely so how old like were you when this... yeah were you 16 yeah I was 16 okay so you go back to your hometown Yes. And my dad has moved into a one bedroom apartment in the downtown core, which to me seemed just fabulous. And, but he was still working long, long, long hours. So um, now I'm actually closer to the city and um, living alone, basically. So I just kind of, at first for a long time, I tried to get back into it. I um, was trying to get a job and, and enrolled 
back in school and I, I definitely wanted to go down the right track. I um, had committed when I was in jail to um, living a different life. I regretted the decisions I made. I regretted the pain it caused um, the people involved and all that. And I didn't want to do that. Um, but eventually I, I think because there was nothing in place when I got out, um, I should have probably been in counseling right away and, right. and had a lot of other things, but the court system right. just demanded a, getting a job. And that was about it. Like, don't heal any of the stuff that caused yeah. Yeah. you to make yeah. these decisions in the first place. Yeah. Sounds, so, that sounds American to me. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, okay. So we adopted that one thing from you guys. Yeah, for sure. I'm sorry sorry um then you're did you you said you tried to get a job you had a job yeah um I worked as an, a Christmas elf in the malls wrapping presents cute and worked for a um sports clothing store and um enrolled in school and um yeah I was pretty good set on on doing it right um and but I think that um first of all the impact that the, you know, the crimes that I had committed and stuff had on people. Um, in my teenage brain, you're so in the moment, you don't think you're ever going to feel different than you do right now. And I never, um, you know, quantified how massive the weight would be to carry when my brain adapted and my brain had time when I was um, in juvenile detention to um, really see a bit of a longer, probably not super long because I was still only 16, but to see a longer picture and know the impact it had on people. And how long were you that, in there again? You said two years. Yeah. Holy shit. That's a long time. Yeah, it was, especially at that age. Cause Holy shit. Um, yes. yes. No, I mean, yeah. And you have no, like my family, my real <laughs> family's, you know, nine and a half hours away. Um, my dad was here, but he was so busy. So visits and stuff I mean you just they, it didn't really exist and so um you didn't really have any connections anymore and unfortunately then you turn to people around you for connection and those are people that are like Kelly Ellard who's in there for murder and and stuff like that um not always the best right there were some amazing people in there amazing people um but some of them yeah made really poor decisions and don't really um, care to grow from that. So when I was in there, I realized a bigger impact than just myself because you're so selfish at that age. You're yeah. so selfish. Yeah. And now I was able to see that this was the 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 shrapnel went far right. from this grenade blast. Right. Well, I you know what? Another thing I wanted to make sure that um, we talked about because it really sparked my interest is you mentioned um, right before you went into jail. I think. Um, you were hanging out at some farm that was like a well-known murder farm or something like, no, you didn't call it a murder farm. I'm sorry. Honestly, I think, uh, I think news articles did oh, though. Okay. Okay. So tell me, it was. tell me what that was because I remember I was like, what the hell is this thing? Like, I was so intrigued. Like you were hanging out. Where is it? And so it was the Picton farm. Um, Picton was a guy here. He's a serial killer. He killed, um, I think they've gotten it up to, well, he said in, when they entered, um, they had a plant in jail cells, like talking to him. He said that he had for sure killed 49 and he was just about to kill number 50 because he wanted to round it off. 
um, but they are pretty sure he killed about 55 women um, in, on the farm. He would um, put them up. He, it was a pig farm, so it's, it was disgusting, absolutely horrendously disgusting. It should have been burned down years before, but he would bring them there and put them on hooks and did horrible, 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 horrible things to them. And one of his things was to supply the teenagers in the town with, um, well, pry them, not supply them, more like pry them to come here with um, drugs, alcohol. We could go there and he wasn't, even though he was an adult, obviously he didn't act like one. I mean, most adults don't want to hang out and party with teenagers exactly. unless there's something yes. mentally wrong right. with you. Um, but he would supply us with that and we could be loud and play music and um, have no supervision and do whatever we wanted to do as long as we um, didn't go in the main house. That is crazy. Yeah, and then um, I think it was... Did you guys, did, was he killing people at this time? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So you knew? I didn't know he was killing people, but I knew that like he was very creepy. He was very, very creepy, um, very weird. Um, I knew that he was extremely protective of the main house. I knew even at that time, even though I kind of forgave it, I guess you would say, I knew intrinsically that it's weird that he wants to hang out with us. Right. Why? Right. Because I'm listening, I would walk by and hear conversations, you know, and the boys are talking about things that are just, I can think about it now and I'm like, I would have no interest. I mean, right. I would just be holding my head going, when are you going to leave? And right. here he is giving us drugs and, and alcohol and letting us take over his space to have us near him. That's strange. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's why he also, his main target was in Vancouver. We have the downtown east side, which um, is unfortunately um, a very long stretch of road that a lot of the at-risk community find themselves landing on, um, especially if they have drug addiction issues. So he targeted that area and would pick up the women there and mm -hmm. bring them back to the farm. And he only ended, Dude. and they knew, the cops had many reports. A lady came to the farm and saw him skinning a lady alive um, on a hook. Yeah. He, uh, what? Oh, he. So he, what, why, why didn't they do anything? Um, that's actually the point of contention for most citizens here and the police have been thrilled to the nth degree and reports uh, have come out and they were able to get a lot of the documentation showing that the police were fully, like uh, the amount of evidence they had was staggering, um, but they didn't care. The um, police force here had decided it didn't matter. Um, they oh were, shit, oh my God, disgusting. Yeah. They yeah. were, you know, um, not the one percenters of the world and they didn't really care. And they still never went and did anything about okay, it. And disgusting. the only reason he got caught is because they came to his house to do something, uh, a bylaw issue, and then noticed a puffer sitting in the ground with the, uh, one of the missing ladies' names on it. And he was burning a mattress in the back covered in all their blood and- Wow. Yeah, yeah, you Google him. He, was probably one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Wow, that's crazy. That's like, it's crazy that you were there. Well, I didn't know he, I didn't know he was killing people at the time. I wasn't like, um, as an adult, you accept certain aspects and it probably has not helped, you know, with um, 
the yeah. compounding of traumas from back then. But at the time, I remember definitely having the thought that it was weird. And yeah, you knew in your weird. gut. Like yeah. you very much knew in your gut. Sarah, yeah. If you ever that that was... talk to me or make me come like talk to him or whatever, I, I was not willing. And I never w- wouldn't be with one of my friends because I knew this was probably right. not a good guy. Right. But didn't stop me from going. Right. That's teenage brain. Yeah, exactly. So you have these realizations when you're when you're in jail for two years and you come out and you're starting to work. And then what happens to Sarah? 16, 17, 18. Um, I didn't like living with, um, my dad and, um, being there alone. And I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. So I became a street kid and, um, lived on the streets for a while and dealt with that lifestyle, which at the, at first is fun and you think you're free and, and you can make your own choices, which you know, and no one understands you're grown. Right. I'm, I'm 16, I'm 17. I should make my own choices. And then you realize, whoa, the choices are, are massive. There's, and there's so many of them. It isn't just mm-hmm. when to go to bed and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's survival at this point. It's cold. Right. It's so cold. How did you survive? Um, I was beyond blessed. I had a two street brothers mm. that, um, definitely paved the way and showed me the ropes. And there's also, um, I actually have it right here because I will never get rid of it. There's a manual. That they, I don't know if they still give it out, but they used to a um, small bound book and they make it really small. So it'll fit in your backpack. Cause like I had a one backpack and um, I had taken a box of, I'm obsessed with getting letters and Stuff. so I took a box full of letters and that took up my entire backpack so I had no clothes in it um so it was nice and small and I kept it thinking I would never need it but it had all the resources in our city um where I could go to get a shower um a hot plate things like that and um so that and my two brothers who I to this day been looking for um that's why I definitely have made it I don't think I don't think I would have um been, I don't think I would have come out of it alive, to be honest. People have actually asked me in, in, as an adult, because I'm so different, um, why I still have, you know, this, this very um, naive, almost level of loyalty and, and love and um, commitment to some of the people, because it's unfortunate that if it goes to people that aren't doing the right thing, you will follow them into the trenches you will follow them and you won't get out even though you see the you know gunfire coming and I um but at the same time if it's people that are good it's so impactful um so I to this day have looked for them and hoped and wondered and prayed that they're good you know like one of my street brothers the one who I really want to find the one that um remembered my name I got picked up when we were 16 and um, we had hitchhiked to a smaller town in between my two towns and an old man saw that we were outside cold and he said he had room at his house for one of us and he suggested me to go because I looked really cold and I figured it was safe because my two brothers would have gotten the license plate number and I got into the vehicle and then 
he drove to down this area that I didn't know. I only knew the downtown core and it was all fast farmland. And he pulled off on the side of the road and turned off the car and started telling, talking to me. And he told me some things like he said that he was an ex-police chief, retired and some stuff like that. And I was like, cool, what are we doing though? Like, where are we, what's happening? And he said, have you ever heard of the Highway of Tears killer? And I hadn't, so I said, no. And then he um, uh, told me he was the Highway of Tears killer and lunged at me and started trying to kill me. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, we were like fighting in the car and- um, Oh my God, Sarah. Ripped my shirt off and I, uh, we were fighting for a really long time and I got the handle to the door and pulled it and I was leaning on the door because we were fighting and I rolled out and I ran down the street half naked no cars to stop and I made my way back and found my three brothers and told them what happened like he's he's like a witness he bears witness to some of the things in my life that a lot of people didn't know about that explain like where I am and why I am me now yes today. absolutely 100,000 percent yes mm-hmm. yep yeah, you're I right. Feel did, like you did, need somebody who, yeah. who knows and can like, you know, the human soul doesn't want to be fixed or or helped mm-hmm. or shaped. We want to be witnessed. That's mm-hmm. what we want in grief. Mm-hmm. We don't need somebody to come in and save the day. We need to nope. be witnessed. Yeah. So after you're a street kid, then how did you become not a street kid, Sarah? Um, I think the turning point for me, the kind of catalyst um lots of you know smaller things that happened I ended up hitchhiking all over and stuff but um I think when I was 20 I was hanging out um with my twin sister at this house and there was an incident where um I think because there was a lack of sleep and uh drug intake and stuff like that one of them was probably going slightly into psychosis and um, out of nowhere, even though it was 15 feet away from where I had been, stated that I must have taken um, something out of this dresser drawer. And oh, no. yeah, and I was explaining how, like rationally, how that's impossible. Like it's just virtually impossible. I'm 15 feet away and my arm reach isn't that far, but psychosis is a, a, a scary thing. Oh, yeah, no, they, they, they believe it. Like oh, there's he, no talking them out no, of it. No, yeah. so he pulled a gun out of the drawer and held me in the room and my sister was in the next one. And so I was trying to say, instead of just, you know, focusing on the fact that I hadn't because I could see that that clearly wasn't gonna go anywhere. um, I more tried to say, not not agree or deny, just say that I'll leave, but I'm gonna leave with my sister. Like my sister's not staying here. And he kept saying, no, no, you're gonna just go. She's having a good time, you're leaving. And I knew, no, no, I'm not going without her. Um, And so he kept the gun on me and was screaming and yelling and uh, eventually just said, get out of here. And I was like, okay. And then on the way by, I said to my sister, get your clothes on, like grab your purse, your coat, your, all your stuff, we're leaving. And she was kind of like, what the, what, why, what's going on? And got up and I started walking. He was screaming. So the other um, men that were there had come up and I knew that that was not good, that oh, it was probably not gonna go well. Um, but I just kept silent and kept walking. And when I got to the top of the stairs, there was an open door to a bedroom right at the top. And I just felt someone push me into it. 
and they got into a circle around me and um, were just kicking, punching, beating the shit out of me. Oh my God, Sarah. Yeah. And my sister was standing there. I mean, what can she do, right? Um, there's five of them and obviously they're not good people and, and there's not much she can do. Um, but I had had a feeling maybe it wasn't good and I had dialed 911 on my phone before um, walking out of the bedroom and I was able to hit the button when they started beating me and it called um, and it hung up because they grabbed my phone and smashed it on the wall. But the police called my dad and asked him if he knew where I was um he didn't um oh my god so I they stopped suddenly and they were like screaming at me to get out and I don't know why because I'm an idiot I guess but I just kept saying like screaming back that I've been asking you to do this I've been asking you to leave you know this whole time and I just started going ape and I was like hitting the walls hitting doors hitting windows I didn't know what anything was but I just went loud and they were like get out they didn't want the nuisance of it and I started to walk the stairs and I felt his foot on my back, kick me down the stairs. And when I got up at the bottom, someone smashed a beer bottle over my head and spat on me and threw me outside. And then the cops came and um, they took us to a grocery store that was right across the street and made us sit in the back. And um, we could hear a lot of loud sounds. Apparently they had barricaded themselves in the house with pitbulls, guns, and um, they knew that for sure there was two of them in there, but they didn't know if um, the other three were or were not. And so they had us waiting to identify who they were. And, and I could hear the flashbang grenades go off when they um, decided to enter the home and, and pulled them out. Oh my God. Yeah. And that was kind of, I think, the moment that I um, was tired, really tired. <sighs> god uh your poor body yeah like my whole life I always said like everyone always commented on the fact that I had a six-pack and and seemed you know fit and I didn't realize until recently that that's actually because I'm just always hyper like stressed and and my whole body is just tightened at all times so it's not I don't work out I consider myself a sloth I do not move if you see me running it's because the bear's coming or the zombie apocalypse so run right, <laughs> right that's right. the only way you're gonna see me move um yeah but I was just always constantly hyperflexed waiting for the next thing to happen I think oh my uh, god so what so what happened to you after that did you go to the the hospital no um I um refused and decided to just super glue it and um but I did press charges so that was another um oddly enough there's a couple moments in my life where I actually was willing to uh, proceed with charges and to be honest that was more traumatic than the experience that elicited the the charges um that was I, I couldn't understand um, for the longest time why, you know, sexual assault survivors and stuff like that don't carry through charges. And then I had that experience and I, it made sense. I had to testify. Um, defense counsel doesn't care if they send you over an edge and, you know, ruin your mental health. They don't care. Their job is to get this person off and that's all that matters. So going on the witness stand was probably one of the worst experiences in my life. Oh God! Oddly enough, like, cause uh, if you heard my timeline, 
I think you would say, well, this sounds worse. Um, being up there and having this thing happen that was beyond scary and um, not knowing what was going to happen. Because, um, you know, when you hear it, you know, I made it out. Obviously, I didn't know if they were going to kill me and then come like twin sister. Oh I didn't God, know. Of course, right. But then to stand up there and answer questions um, factually and be told flat out by someone in the legal system that it's your your fault like you are to blame um you know any decision you made in your entire life is being because they know everything so they'll pull things from when you were 10 12 it doesn't matter um this is why this happened to you and so you only have self blame Oh my God. So they use your entire life against you. They do. And so they were charged and, um, and they were told not to come near us and stuff like that. But the effect of the experience, um, it, the impact is done. You can't undo it now. Right. And it just played into this feeling that I had had because I, you know, had had this life as a teenager and, and living on the streets that, you know, um, there is this connotation that the police hate us. They, they yeah. don't like us. They don't care about the little guy and they'll, you know, they'll never really be in your right. corner. And this kind of solidified it, I think, in my brain at the time. But um, I knew that that also meant that I couldn't be in a position where I needed them ever. So I decided then and there that I was going to change my life path. And I got training to become a hoist operator and got into construction and was doing my thing. And I met my son's father and had a baby and settled down and became movie homemaker for nine and a half years. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge transformation. Yeah. It was, uh, I loved it. I loved every moment of it. It wasn't a fake it till you make it type situation. It really was. Um, I had arrived there and was capable and, and my mindset had changed and wanted those things. Um, I never expected for that to come undone until it came undone, of course, as it goes. Um, but that I was happy to do that and for the rest of my life and, and would have stuck with that and just been a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. And then right. he threw a wrench in that. Oh. As it goes. As it goes, indeed. Yeah. That's a big, just, it's hard to not notice the pattern of disappointment in the men area. Yeah. In your life. I hadn't like, noticed it, to be honest. I hadn't noticed it until recently. He cheated on me for seven and a half years. Oh, I was no. birthing our child and thought he was on his phone looking at paintings and he was actually talking to, you know, women that he was cheating on me with. Um, it put a dark stamp on a lot of the fondest memories of my life. You know, the birth of my son and all these things I found out a uh, week before Christmas oh, my from my son. My son was the one that told oh, me because God. he introduced him to someone. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So that was like a you know, one, literally one day you're living this life, you have uh, arrived at the point where you know this. Well, and especially coming from where, like what it has yeah. to have taken you. Yeah. Yeah. To 
want to be in a uniformed absolutely and and drilling him and letting him know all and you've overcome a drug addiction you've overcome like homelessness you've overcome poverty you've overcome I mean when I say overcome I'm not saying emotionally but like neglect and like all those things you're like I'm I am I can trust another human and I told him all of them he knew them so he knew that you know as much as I had overcome and I had grown through them um that I definitely was going to be slightly more sensitive like things would have a greater impact um something like infidelity is I mean probably one of the worst things you can go through anyways for on a good day um but for me it it's almost like evidence of what I already had been shown which is that I am nothing I am worthless this is all exactly that is exactly like you you don't you don't deserve anything nothing like you're just the funnel of diarrhea in the mouth yeah just consistent like you don't matter in the world yeah it's this is just another piece of proof yeah and it's not true the person that i felt um i closest to was gonna keep me safe too he was gonna be the one that got up in the middle of the night when there was a bump in the night and come out with the bat swinging and you know would lay down his life for us kind of a thing and then to know that um at that point I had come to the realization that I didn't couldn't have another thing that I needed to survive because I wouldn't survive it um and that happened but I was able to survive it because of my son but it definitely put me into a place where my brain was incapable of handling even a, a feather blow of you know traumatic hard sad experience and then you know that's not how life goes no it sure isn't it really isn't I mean but yeah of course it put you in a bad it put you in a spot of survival mode it did but then you know you're I did like my mom you know you're you're in this position it sucks you wouldn't have chosen it but you have a child you're gonna pull up your big girl panties and you get done what you need to get done so I, you know, put on my bootstraps and, and I hit the road, Pete, and I was able to, um, I was a photographer at the time and my business flourished and I was doing extremely well. And, um, I had my son the majority of the time and things were going good. Um, and then I, um, had a situation where the housing market here went insane and, um, rental prices went through the roof because there was a 0% occupancy rate. And my landlord, I was renting a, a full house for $1,200 and he knew he could be getting three times that. So he tricked me basically. And he told me that he needed to move his in-laws in, which is the only way you can evict someone here for no reason and that I needed to move. So um, when you do that, you get three months free rent. And so I didn't pay the three months. He actually had never written it down in paper but I trusted him because I had lived there nine years, went to his wedding, all this stuff. So I didn't get the paper. He then files and says that I haven't paid the rent, kicks me out. And all of a sudden I get a call at work that the bailiff is there. They have all my things and I'm now homeless. So back to, you know, being a teenager, basically, I had to live in my car. I was sleeping in park and I knew I couldn't bring my son for that because I mean, that's not a good life. So I asked yeah I asked my ex if he would have him until I thought it would maybe take me two months to find a place to move so I asked him if he could have him for the two months and he said yes 
and then it took like six months to find a home and me and my mom worked tireless I mean she oh I'd be at work and she would be calling uh homeless relief workers and would be on the phone just giving them the whole lowdown so I could run to the bathroom and hide cooking and get on the phone because they'd need to speak to me but she would be tirelessly tirelessly putting in the work and the effort Mm -hmm. to make the help um come to an end and finally it did um because of our efforts I had gotten the call in August that I was approved for um a housing and then and it was based on my income and such and then I got laid off two weeks later so then I had no income to pay for such housing and um but I thought you know that's a tomorrow problem we're going to figure that out right my mom said take a month or two to try and heal from the homelessness because it was rough I mean it it took a fucking toll I thought it took a toll as a child it as an adult when you have your own child and you have this feeling that you should be doing more you should be there more you should you know be handling this better it it's weighs much heavier so she said take a couple months um get the get ei like um and just freaking heal from this hell and that was the plan that's what i was gonna do i'm gonna heal from this hell and then get Mm. back in the saddle and fight and have my boy back and everything would be good and then uh me and my girlfriend decided to go to the bar across the street from here to celebrate having this new home that I had dreamed of having and struggled for and prayed for and it was the missing piece to have my son back so this home exemplified my boy this was my son this was um this was the light at the end of the tunnel and I had it so we were going to celebrate right and it was as you should yeah and I thought you know it's right across the street and I had said to her you know um that it needs to be close night that you know we weren't going to talk to anyone else she couldn't pick up a guy and I had explained that I would not allow anyone else back to my house because I they have a probation period where everything has to be great and good for a little while and I was not willing to risk this for anything um but not long after we got there she was talking to two gentlemen and had mentioned that um they had bought us a shot to come take it and be nice is what she said and i walked over i took the shot i polluted them i walked away and started dancing again and then i remember starting to feel funny but not like connecting the dots and this was just last year this was 2018 yeah uh, 2018 okay october 2018 so right at the end and I started to feel kind of weird. And when I felt, started to notice that I felt weird, the lights had come on and I felt someone grab kind of my elbow and start leading me to the front door. And there was a car waiting. And I remember like just kind of being pushed into it and um, being really, feeling really confused. And my friend was in the car. And I remember all of a sudden them stopping at uh, some like neighborhood and trying to figure out where we were and what was happening and I couldn't and then we were back at my house and we were all inside and I leaned on the counter because I couldn't really stand anymore and one of them was reaching underneath and grabbing like my private area 
and her saying, not touch me. I remember hearing that, her yelling, don't touch her. And then I remember waking up suddenly on the my living room floor and seeing him, one of them standing over me and her asking me, what did you do? And then I don't remember anything. I remember suddenly waking up in the upstairs and realizing that I was on the floor in front of my new bedroom and that I don't know how I got here and I don't fully know if I did I just pass out drunk who's here is what part is real and I then it just whooshed me as I say it just I remember feeling like the biting I remember waking up at one point and feeling the biting on my breath and then I remember feeling um the pain on my throat when he was choking me and I remember like the stomach pounds so I knew I needed to like call 911 and I rolled over and went to get up and I realized my legs didn't work and I was paralyzed from the leg down. So I crawled, commando crawled to my phone and I remembered that my friend was here and wondering if she was okay. And so I dialed 911 and they asked me, and I couldn't really speak very well, I was slurring. They asked me my address, but I didn't know it yet because I'd only been here a month. And I was screaming her name, but she wasn't answering. And I just, suddenly had this like dateline moment of her being down there and either <clears throat> she's dead <clears throat> or you know they're they've done like the same thing with her and so when I got to the stairs I was I told them like I didn't know my address and I threw myself down the stairs and I was screaming her name and I saw her laying on my couch with her back to <sighs> me and I thought she's dead because I was screaming her name and I thought she's dead. She's, she's dead. Like she's absolutely dead. And I dragged myself over to her and I grabbed her shoulder and she rolled over and said, what's going on? And I just lost it. I don't think I have ever cried that hard. I think honestly, Mm -hmm. not just the cry from that moment. I think from all the cries that I didn't have time for in the last, you know, 35 years came out and I, couldn't breathe it was one of those silent cries where it's just empty because it's too much to come out of that funnel at once Mm. and I broke down because now I could too because she's safe everything's good and I just lost it and then um I remember curling into a ball and um holding my leg and then four men standing over top of me which was the police that showed up and then realizing that they there's a lot of people in here and that means a lot of vehicles. And this is going to be a nuisance and I may lose my housing, which means I can't get my son. So I started panicking inside and I told them, can you just take my vitals and then go? Um, Cause I can't have this. I'm gonna feel like I need this for my son. If I lose my housing, I can't have him. And they, started telling me that if I didn't come with them that I was going to be detained and if I still didn't come that I was under arrest and I'm ODD never had a good experience with them in the past just had all um authority over my own body and all that taken right. by a man and I got four of them standing over me in uniform right. telling me that I need to stop crying immediately which good luck Tell someone to calm down when they're not calm. They're not going to calm down. Tell them to stop crying. They can't. 
and they're telling me, stop crying, stop crying. Why are you so upset? And demanding I come. <sighs> so I kept saying, please, can you just like, can we do this a different way? Can you guys move your vehicles? I don't know. I was just so frantic. Um, and your right. brain is trying to catch up and they won't stop for a minute so that you can just catch up. Right. And they said, too late, you're under arrest. And they grabbed me by my arm and dragged me to an ambulance, threw me in the ambulance and took me to the hospital, which obviously did not help the situation because um, I felt basically like I had all say over my own body and everything taken away again. Um, and I kept saying, can I please have a female officer? Can I please have uh, something, a, a girl? I just need a girl. I need a female to come here and right. screaming at me to walk faster. And I kept trying to tell them like my legs aren't working yet. And they um, ended up doing my interview in front of all of the patrons of the emergency room. So everyone was listening and watching while they asked me if I was sodomized, um, how he, you know, did he do this to you, that to you? I would look over and just see all these eyeballs staring at me. Mm. And I couldn't stop crying. I just could how not. Terrible. Stop. How absolutely horrible. It was, to be completely honest, because. Fucking nightmare. The one, like, in a weird way, like the the nicest thing he did for me was he drugged me. So it made it come back slowly, which is a benefit of a curse. You don't get to choose when certain things come back. A certain smell reminds you of something you didn't remember happened. But it was also a blessing because it was slow, but the police were so fast and I still needed to catch up from what I did remember already. And they wouldn't let me, they were, there was no time and they're telling me put your arm out they're they're, they're gonna stick Ugh. a needle in it and you're trying to ask what for and you they're like don't worry about it they won't tell you why they're taking a piece of your body and you already feel like a piece of your body and your soul has been right. taken and so you want to protect yes. what you have left and you just want to know what someone's gonna do to you mm -hmm. and they yes. tell you and the more you ask, the more annoyed they are. And so the meaner they are. And right. so I couldn't stop crying and it annoyed them further. But luckily I had a friend who happened to be a nurse at the hospital and recognizing it came up. And she even said to the, one of the officers that's in the police report that she could understand why I was so upset because their treatment was so terrible. Like they pinned me down, they took blood. They told me they didn't care what happened with any of this. They he straight up the supervisor said straight up like we don't effing care what happens with any of this and at the time I just thought what's the point then and so I said I just want to go home and I didn't want to do the full rape hit but when um they walked out and left me there half drugged and I found my way home I called my mom and she looked up a um place here that um is does rape relief and they came and my amazing girlfriend drove me to the hospital. They met us there and I, that's where I stayed for the next 10 hours. Cause that's how long it took for them to photograph all the bruising, all of the bite marks, 
all of the scratches and marks. And 10 hours later, I walked out <laughs> and made my way home where you walk in the door and you plop down and this is supposed to be your safe zone. You're like, you're back in your cocoon. And I just looked around and couldn't stand it anymore because it was just as evil as what was outside. And then they showed up the next day, knocked on my door to give me my safety plan, <coughs> which consisted of uh, keep your phone charged at all times, call 911 in an emergency, pick better friends, and don't let strangers in your home. Wow. That was my safety plan. Basically, don't wear a skirt and you won't get raped. Yeah, exactly. Like, wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was my safety plan. And uh, that was the involvement from them. Yeah. And that one, that took me down. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know if it was just because it was a thing in a long line of things or if it was because I was an adult or if it was because I'm all a mother. Of it. All I, of it. Yeah. All of it. Like all encompassing yeah. of all those things. It's so layered. And it's also like, maybe you're more in touch with your feelings. Yeah. And you're more, you're more aware. Whereas prior sometimes like, you know, you're just in survivor mode. So you don't even feel it. It's like numb almost. Well, and I think before I always had somewhere to fall back, like at the, <clears throat> end of the day if I needed to I my I could call my mom and I you know if I was stuck on the side of a road somewhere or whatever it didn't matter I could call my mom and I would have a safe place this was now the safe place and it was the place that you know during the homelessness I dreamed of and fought so hard for and it was the light at the at the end of this tunnel and I now had it and now it's tainted it is so right. tainted and I'm supposed to live here this was going to be the place that we created memories and I raised my son in and I can't stand it and then I can't run out the door and go to another safe place and at the end of the day before I always knew who I was and what I stood for and I I knew my morals I knew where I came from I knew my stock and so I kind of even in the darkest days had this lighthouse that led me and he took that I didn't know it, who I was anymore I was so broken down I felt like an empty shell and I didn't even like the shell I had before <laughs> but I would have traded it for anything in the world to go back to it because it was familiar and I knew it and I and I kind of knew who I was and I didn't know who I was anymore I felt trapped in this body because I could swear that everyone smelled him still because I could smell him every day <laughs> And I swore that they could see the words written on my face that I was useless and worthless and garbage and trash. And so I didn't want to even leave my house. But then staying in this house was right. the worst thing ever. Yeah. It right. trapped me in every way. Yes. I had no escape. It was a prison. Right. right. How did you do it? How, how have you gotten through it? Um, I fell apart. For sure, for I think six months, I um, basically just uh, wanted to die, to be honest. Um, just sat thinking of 
the multiple ways I could just kill myself and attempted um, one time. Um, and then I entered what I like to call the blobby phase, which is everyone kind of talks about how right after it's, and it's this traumatic thing you hear people give in, uh, victim impact statements about how horrible the experience was and it's true um, for sure. And for a long time after it's definitely horrible, but there's, and then you hear stories about the overcoming, like the hero moment when yeah. everything gets better, but nobody ever really talks about the blobby stage, which is this weird in between where you've kind of come to and you realize that you're not okay, but you don't know how I'm okay because no one tells you what's normal. And so you're aware that you're not good, that you definitely are not good. Um, but you don't know how bad you are because is it normal to wonder this? Is it normal to think about this? Is it to, normal to uh, focus on this for seven days? I mean, you either don't sleep because I had insomnia really bad, or I would sleep in my closet, crawl down to my couch, crawl up onto it and sit there for like 18 hours staring at a wall and contemplating weird things, how I could find out who he was. Um, I would write lists. I have lists of questions for my rapist, um, wondering, you know, does he, my biggest question is what the payoff was because I feel like um, I can live with this if I know that the cost paid off something. Like, did he maybe not harm anyone else for a while? Um, did it benefit him in some way? Because if I know what my value was and what this hell bought, then I can maybe do it. And so I would just sit here and wonder, does he have a family? Does he have daughters? Does he know what he, does he, does he ever think about me? Does he even remember me? Does he know that I'm a mother? Like I would just write lists and then, and just focus. Eventually it got to the point where I couldn't, I knew I couldn't do anything about him because um, in Canada, we hate rape as a police department because it's often a he said, she said, and they have a hard time um, laying charges because it's too hard to prove. Even though I ended up doing the rape kit and they did get DNA, he could just say that I had agreed to. So they don't like it. Um, and so quite often it doesn't actually even make its way to charges. But um, I felt like so disillusioned with the police because you're taught. I remember as a child, my mom always saying, if anything bad happens or you get lost, find someone in a uniform. Right get like a policeman a fireman go up to them let them know you're lost because they are heroes all boys want to be mm -hmm. a fireman you know they love the siren um for them to then do what they did and the treatment to be so horrible i just zoomed in on that and that was the focus because it was the only thing i could do something about no it makes sense considering your story yeah. like it makes sense i felt so. like they I, there needed to be like some amount of change and that um, my experience was an extremely like probably amplified um, example of this problem that they have um, that is slightly secret but not so secret that they do hate sexual assault that they 
are extremely behind the times when it comes to trauma and crisis and, and how to handle that, which um, was definitely evident when they came to my home a few months later, a friend had called for a wellness check because I definitely was not doing well. And um, they shouldn't even be attending wellness checks because it's a mental health issue. And so it tells you your mental health is criminal. It gives the impression mm -hmm. you're bad. Oh yeah, it's pretty bad. It's absolutely, same. I mean, same here. It's so bad. It's so incredibly terrible. I can't, I can't tell you how many Kicked times my I've door. stood witness. Yeah, oh my God, that's crazy. That's like, yeah, exactly, exactly that. Yeah, not okay. In my door, like, dragged me but with handcuffs to the hospital. And then after I was released, um, they just drove away and I, my door is still broken. Um, so it's for my safety, but I've had no locking door for uh, three months now. Um, right. So they just, there needs to be a change. And I felt like um, I honestly, it got to a point where I actually had said to my mom at one point, I cannot survive this and come out of this if I don't do something about them and how they treated me and do and make change for this because yeah. it was so so traumatic well even at the hospital in the midst of all that I think I said probably to be honest 18 times you guys need more crisis training yeah. um I kept yeah. asking for a female um it was not allowed I'm blessed that one of the officers because I did file for the police report um, all of them basically say the exact same thing in it. And then one of them does say that a little more honesty. And he said that in the ambulance, um, the when, or at the hospital, the supervisor said, let her go. And he said to the supervisor, we can't remember you told us to put her under arrest. And he said, and the supervisor answered, what for? So he asked them to put me under arrest, but doesn't even know what for. And so this officer said, uh, the mental health act, I guess. And he said, well, what part of it though? Like they're literally trying to come up afterwards with why you would put someone under arrest for, they say in there that I was distraught. Uh, yeah, you were because you just had an assault happen. Yeah. You just had a complete rape. Like, yeah. yes, that's correct. I just that woke is up the on the floor. Response. That is a correct response. So if you don't need crisis training when you think that someone who's just been like violently, like the forensic um, doctor who did the exam even said like the amount of bruising and, and damage and stuff, like it was horrendous. And I am waking up to it. I'm, I'm not even fully, and I would, they'd be yelling at me and it would, parts would come back because of that. So I'm now like learning and right. watching the movie of basically what he did. Yeah, so how are you healing? How are you, since this is so fresh, like how, what's helped you for, for oh, other oh. listeners? And like, what? tell me what's helping you. It's so funny you say so fresh because for me, it feels like it, in, in this weird um, paradigm of like fresh, but also old because you hear often, you're not over that yet. You, like you're not done that mm. kind of a thing. Um, mm, I feel like it's so fresh. I feel like that's like- Me too. It's so fresh. That's like brand new stuff. I feel like it was and yesterday. The, it was, I, first I wanted to go away. I decided I came to the conclusion at one point that um, I needed to go away and I could not be in my home because you can't heal from um, this thing that made you sick and be literally laying inside of it. You just can't right. do it. 
And so um, my mother graciously let me come to Nelson um, for a couple months to um, basically hide. And I got there and she said that I was vibrating in all senses of the word, my, you know, energy, my body, everything. I was vibrating. And so the first month I was there, I did nothing but eat and sleep and did nothing, not a darn thing. And God love her for it because I didn't even know that that's what I needed. Um, Mm -hmm. I was so tired. I slept, I think like, I think it was like 19 hours a day. Um, and just was my brain, everything was catching up and she understood. Thank God she would say to me, these are the things you need to do. I just want you to do one of them today. And it could be as simple as, you know, I would send an email to victim services because I'm the type of person that overwhelms and I put it all on my plate at one time. And I feel like I have to do all this stuff. And then I beat myself down because I'm not capable in the trauma. Some days it's just an email and some days Mount fucking Everest. I can't climb it. And she said, I don't care if you do one, you do one. And that permission was life altering in that moment. I needed permission from people to be not okay. As weird as that sounds. And so I did that. And then I, and that like actually brought me out of the blobby phase enough to not be comatose in my own body. Cause I had been so comatose. I was unaware. I was a walking corpse. And I knew that I needed to like get deeper help. And that's when I became obsessed with looking up PTSD and different types of treatment. And I literally wanted to do it all. Um, So I have tested some things that are, you know, a little less mainstream. I've obviously done counseling and and I had an amazing counselor with the Rape Crisis Center here and then moved to another one. Um, I microdosed. I... Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm neurofeedback I it became a mission to um not die from this because yes he didn't kill me but I took 15 bars of Xanax and some Adderall I didn't want to live like this anymore and no one could tell me if I was gonna have to but I knew for a fact one day that I was not gonna die from this without fighting at all right And the fight of just surviving wasn't enough. I needed to thrive and I couldn't do that alone. And I'm still, I mean, I'm not okay. And I don't ever admit that to a lot of people. And I have clawed and fought my fucking ass off to get to just almost barely okay. And then to accept that. Right. It's yes. the acceptance of where you are at each moment that is so right. hard because I felt everyone wanted me to be faster and, and I would put pressure on myself and um, I was trying to live by what everyone else needed of me still and that kept me so sick because I was so clinging to the girl that I was before even though I didn't even like her it's like hard. I was never that fond of her but then when I lost her I didn't want this new robot that I didn't know the controls of and so I clung and when I decided it was okay to be this new one we will get to know her we are going to learn to love her and it's going to actually be the 2.0 version then the world opened up 
Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. That's fun times. Yeah. It's like making a new friend or going on a first date. I'm learning. I'm learning this version. Wow, Sarah. Oof. Thank you so much for spending time with me and emailing me and being a friend to me. I really appreciate you and everything that you are. Uh, So Sarah's nonprofit, she picked Surrey Women's Center Society in British Columbia and shared that this was a group that actually helped her with the most recent assault. They're amazing. One of the services that they offer is Surrey Mobile Assault Response Team provides a services over the phone and in person to anyone who has experienced a physical or sexual assault by a stranger or someone they know. And their team's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just absolutely amazing. I will definitely link this nonprofit and donate myself. As always, my nonprofit is uh, Rahab Sisters. Uh, they're kicking butt and doing a lot of wonderful things. Um, again, thank you so much for listening to me ramble and listen to Sarah's story. I really appreciate you. I love you so much. And thanks for listening.